Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and joining me today is Dr. Natalie Byfield. We'll be talking about Natalie's book, Savage Portrayals, Race, Media, and the Central Park Jogger Story, which focuses on media coverage of the Central Park Jogger case in 1989, a case described by the New York Times as one of the most widely publicized crimes of the 1980s. Savage Portrayals unpacks the ways in which media coverage contributed to the wrongful conviction of a group of black and Latino youths who were accused of the rape and assault of a white woman jogging in Central Park during April 1989. Natalie is currently an associate professor at St. John's University in Queens, New York, where her research explores the role of language and media systems in the production and construction of race, class and gender inequalities. In 1989, she was a member of a reporting team nominated by the New York Daily News for a Pulitzer Prize relating to coverage of the Central Park Jogger case. Natalie is also working on a new book project currently titled Minority Report, Place, Race and Surveillance in New York City. So Natalie Byfield joins me today. Um, How are you doing today, Natalie? I'm doing well, thank you. That's good. So to introduce yourself uh, to the listeners here on the New Book Network, um, if you'd like to just uh, say a little bit about your trajectory and how you came to to write this book about the Central um, Park case. I worked on the Central Park jogger case as a journalist when the story first broke back in 1989. And the case stuck with me because of just the the high level of one emotion around it. So it leaves a lasting impact and two, just the disconcerting feeling I had about the whole case and the way in which the media had covered the case. And when I say disconcerting feeling, you had the strong sense. I had the strong sense that something terribly wrong Something had gone terribly wrong, I should say it that way, um, with the the case itself, the legal aspects of the case, and also with the coverage. Okay, so um, obviously the first time that you uh, kind of covered the the case was um, as a journalist. Um, So can you say a little bit about how, uh, first of all, you you came kind of your first experience uh, covering it um, during the late 80s and then coming back to it later as, as a kind of academic or sociologist? Well, my first experience covering it was the first day of coverage, literally, when I was sent, the daily assignment editor sent me to the hospital to get an update on her condition. And I heard about the case the morning as I was getting, re- that same morning as I was getting ready for work. And you just knew this was going to be a big case because the description being provided by the announcer on the radio um, left me with the impression that the woman who had been raped was white um, 
and because of the location that they gave, um, you it just left you wondering, oh, is it possibly an interracial case? And if that's the case, if that's the situation in this particular case, then there is just a greater likelihood that it was going to get a lot of media attention. So I already anticipated those things once I heard it on the radio. And then when I got into the office that morning and you saw um, the office, just this, this, this energy coursing through the office where everyone was involved in what was going on and people were being dispatched to different places around the city and to um or dispatch to get information about the case uh you you saw then instantly that oh yes my my um my expectations were certainly being realized this was going to be a very very big deal in terms of the coverage and so i was sent to the hospital where um where the woman had been taken um and uh, just spent <clears throat> that first day there getting information about, getting an update from, uh, I believe doctors were, were still giving some information out. And then um, at that point, also just getting a sense, because there was so much press there, getting a sense of just how big this was going, the, the, this, the story was going to be. And um, at what point did you realize that this was going to become a book and um, kind of you, you began to <coughs> sift back through um, that kind of first experience as a journalist the first time that you saw the case? Well, when I worked as a reporter, I was someone who had already put in some work towards my PhD. And uh, after several years of working as a journalist, and doing some other work that related to media, I decided to return to graduate school to finish up the PhD. And I knew going in that this was going to be the topic of my dissertation because the case was just that big for me in terms of how it, the, the case was that big for me, one, and, and also that problematic for me in terms of what happened with the with the teens who are now young men um, and how the media handled the case. So I returned to graduate school in 2000 and this was even before the um, the district attorney had started re-examining the case. And even at that point, I knew this is something I just want to work on. So let's um, let's talk about some of the specifics of the case for uh, listeners who might not be uh, kind of fully up to speed um, with uh, what happened and how the situation unfolded. Um, so you have the kind of assault uh, and rape of a female jogger um, in Central Park in April 1989. Um, if you could kind of flesh out a little bit of detail um, about uh, who who the kind of main players are in this case. Um, so you have a certain number of young men or uh, young boys, really, who are accused of the crime. Um, and this very quickly kind of snowballs into a very highly uh, charged case, a very racialized case uh, from the from the outset. 
Right. Um, you have a woman who was who used to jog regularly and she was an investment banker working for uh Solomon Brothers which um is is no longer exists and she had been jogging in the park that night late that night and um you have five five teens five uh, black and Latino teens who were, who have been accused of being part of this huge group of um, teens from the neighborhood, because this is the Northern section of Central Park, which borders on 110th Street and Fifth Avenue, which is in the area of um, that people, which is part of Harlem. And so uh, earlier in that same day, a big group of teens from the neighborhood had gone into the park and there were teens involved in um, various levels, varying levels of assault um, or harassment of people who were in the park, joggers, bicyclists, a taxi driver, a homeless man. So there had been varying levels levels of uh, assault, harassment going on in the park that day and committed by teens. Police had been alerted that this was going on in the park and had gone out to look for people. So you you had te- the, the teens who were eventually charged and convicted being in the park that day and being 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 involved in running around in the park that day when some of these events start to unfold, these assaults and harassment start to unfold and the police, the police come to look for the people responsible for that. Um, There are a lot of teens running around and trying to get, just get out of the area. And some of them get picked up in that process. And as they are, as the police are out searching for the teens involved in these uh, assaults, harassments, and uh, as they are about the business of taking some to the precinct, um, questioning them, finding out who was involved, some of the teens are there. Some of the five, the, the five who were eventually convicted, are there, and they are. They, they have asked their parents to come, the families to come and talk to them. While these teens are there, um, they get the information be- about this jogger being found in the park. And the jogger was found in the park around 1.30 in the morning of the 20th. And um, there's a decision made that, hold on a second, let's not release these teens that we have here because they might be the ones responsible for this jogger. So the police essentially um, put all of this together as one night of rampage in the park. And they treat the rape as part and parcel of the harassment and assaults going on in the park and call this this quote-unquote night of rampage wilding. And so also, this is the first time the the public <clears throat> excuse me the public is is 
exposed to this so-called new type of crime that's being committed by um, Black and Latino or minority youths in New York City. And uh, the police build this idea in their minds that somehow or another, this rape is the culmination of this night of wilding in the park. So if they have picked up teens who may or may not have been involved in these assaults going on in the park, they need to look at them very closely because they're likely the ones who were involved with this, this attack on the woman. So these, um, this, this group of, of five teens are picked up by police. Um, and then what happens, what kind of, of process gets put into play? Are these are these teens um, allowed to see family members? Are they given kind of uh, support? Um, are they isolated? Uh, how do the police play this out to, in the kind of first hours of the case as it begins to unfold? Um, well, they, they, they pick them up at different times in different places because they, for instance, some were found outside the park, you know, a couple were picked up outside the park as the police were on the way into the park to look for the teens involved. And they start questioning them to find out what what they knew, if they were involved. And um, the process of questioning involves them also, um, <clears throat> also tricking them essentially into giving it, giving information about each other. Over the course of the questioning, the parents come in at different points in time because they're also reaching out to family members to try to get the family members in there, which is for minors, they're supposed to, I think kids under 16, they're supposed to be quite, they cannot be questioned without um, a, a parent or guardian present. And so the police, the police essentially tried to get the parents and guardians there and um allow them to think that, well, if you just tell us what was going on in the park, um, <clears throat> then we let you go home. And the police essentially feed them information about the incident itself to try to get them to construct a story about what happened in the park that night. And if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of kind of extracting a confession uh, from each of, each of these teenagers, um, how do the police go about that? And are they successful in um, extracting some kind of confession, whether it's like a forced confession or coerced confession from, from the... Uh, exactly. Exactly. They, they essentially are able to extract a false confession that seems plausible because... As they try to con as they try to convince the kids and their parents, for the ones who have parents present, as they try to ex elicit confessions from them, they are actually feeding them information about what happened that night in the park. Information that only someone who was aware of what happened could know. So, as the as the kids try to tell them things that they think will help them to just get out of this spot that they found themselves in, they're actually feeding back to the police things about the incident, even though they get loads and loads of it wrong, like the color of the jogging suit is wrong, the location of the attack is wrong, even though essential bits of information are incorrect, they're still feeding them back information that's essentially tainted information, because it's not really a confession, it's something that's 
that's fed to them that they're coerced into feeding back to the police under the guise of, well, if you just tell us what we need to know, we'll let you go because we're looking for these other people. And they go so far as to say to one, well, it'll make your story more believable if you put yourself at the scene. So you've got to put yourself at the scene so people understand you really know what, what, what you're saying and you're credible as this witness because they think they're providing information as witnesses when in fact they're essentially eliciting this, this confession, quote unquote, from them so that they can basically in their mind solve their case. And um, what kind of uh, context can you give listeners about how this case unfolds against the backdrop of New York in the late 1980s in terms of uh, escalating racial tensions within the city? Um, And then you have uh, racialized fears with regards to, so you've already mentioned kind of crime um, and also you have the crack epidemic. And obviously that carried very strong uh, kind of overtones of uh, race or racialization in terms of which groups um, were perceived as being the kind of uh, source of the crack uh, epidemic. Um, So how does that background, how important is that in terms of understanding how this uh, case plays out? I think it's, I think the backdrop of the city um, politically, racially um, are very important. And the politics and the racial issues come together around the issue of crime. Because crime is becoming a growing um, political issue. This is the, we're, we're maybe a decade into the turn towards law and order in the society at large, not just in New York City. And in the city itself, part of what is being experienced is this growing crack epidemic. And I, I, I always hesitate when I use the term epidemic because crack is presented as an epidemic across the country during this time. But it, it, it was not an epidemic, so to speak, across the country. It, it reached, quote unquote, epidemic proportions in very specific areas. In, 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 it was a bigger issue in poor minority urban communities than it was, let's say, nationwide. But because it was presented as this nationwide epidemic and associated with uh, low-income or poor minorities, Blacks and Latinos, young Black and Latino males in particular become the face of this new, quote-unquote, scourge that's affecting um, the nation as a whole. So what you see happening across the nation as a result of this crack epidemic in poor poor or low-income minority communities is that a a particular group of people are being identified as a problem and a moral panic is created um, around Black and Latino youth. And so... If, if we even look at the, the crime itself of what happened to this, this woman who, through no fault of her own, she's attacked, brutally, assault, you know, brutally assaulted, sexually assaulted, and really within inches of, of, you know, within an inch of losing her life. When you look at what happened to her, we do have this case of this, this, this serious rape case, almost a homicide case, in fact, because it was touch and go at, at, at points early on, whether or not, you know, she would survive. And 
you have this serious rape case and there's actually a rapist going around the city at the time. And this rapist had attacked someone just a couple of hundred yards or so away, away from where um, the, the jogger is attacked that night. Yet they don't come at this as a possible rape case. They come at this as, oh, it's this group of kids, this group of black and Latino kids who at the end of this, um, this evening of marauding and rampaging in the park culminated with an, a, a sexual attack, sexual assault on a white woman who, and in some of the coverage, they, a white woman they were hunting for. Terms like that were used in the coverage. So you can see where the moral panic takes over even the thinking of people involved, not just, not just in the police force, but across the nation, across the city, across the nation. What is what it what what makes the police though and the prosecutors particularly culpable in the way in which they handle the cases? These are supposedly professionals. And if there is a rape, you would think that they would look at other rapes in the area. Does it match anything else? Is it possible that there is a, uh, a connection to other rapes? And there is. And there is one cop who's working on this rape and one of the other rapes committed by the person who later on, it was determined, had raped the Central Park jogger that night. But they don't see it that way. They, they, the, 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 the solution to this crime fits in with the moral panic, the tone, the, the, the timber, the, the, um, the, the conceptualizations of um, this moral panic that's being spun around young black and Latino males in urban areas. So you've, um, you've already mentioned uh, your own personal experience, you know, straight away you, you felt or you knew that this was going to be like this, this huge story. Um, and you kind of, uh, in, in, the, in the book, um, you, that's reflected in, in the way that news editors, you describe news editors handling the story as if it was a, a major disaster, such as a plane crash. Mm -hmm. um, and you also talk about divisions between journalists, um, not just across kind of publication lines, but also within the newsroom across maybe racial or gender lines. Um, so if you can say a little bit about how um, maybe the assumptions or perceptions of the case might have varied between journalists, both uh, in your own experience within your own newsroom and then across kind of more broadly the New York press. Well, things were things were divided along lines of race within my newsroom and then within the press. So, for example, you look at the black press in New York City um, and you see that an example is the Amsterdam News or the City Sun, two of the black papers in the city, the City Sun no longer exists, um, were covering this case quite differently. And um, they thought the coverage, they thought the coverage was outrageous the coverage by the mainstream press, but even within the context of my newsroom, I saw the breakdown along racial lines because New York City was balkanized at the time in terms of um, racially balkanized, race and class-wise, I would say balkanized. And um, for people who lived outside of outside of the, the, the areas that 
were infused with capital and doing well and were part of dominant culture, um, which was a big segment of Manhattan, let's say. People living outside of Manhattan, um, outside of the, 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 the more capitalized parts of Manhattan, Harlem's in Manhattan, but it's in this underfunded, under-resourced area at the time. People living outside of outside of the the, the main areas, let's say, <clears throat> they they are marginalized in the city. And most of the times, we're talking about marginal this marginalization um, corresponding with race and class divisions. And so, if you come from those marginalized areas, as I I did, I grew up in Queens. You 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 recognize the <clears throat> excuse me the types of stereotypes that are leveled against communities of color. The stereotypes that are leveled against blacks, Latinos, against lower income people, that was was the nature of the city at the time in terms of the way it was organized and structured. And it, it has changed somewhat, but as we listen to what's going on even in this election cycle. It's, I think it's clear to people everywhere that um, racial divisions abound all across the United States, not just in our city. So these, uh, these teenagers um, kind of implicated and then they come to trial um, in 1990. Um, how are they tried? Are they tried as, as children? Um, are they tried as adults? Um, how does the press approach the trial? Is there still that same kind of assumption of guilt as there has been in the in the primary coverage in the days immediately after the attack? Yeah, the the assumption the assumption of guilt is there, and they're they're tried as adults, and the assumption of guilt is there. Um, they. The, the group, the, the trials are broken down or the, what I call the legal phase of the case is broken down into uh, three components. Uh, there are two trials and there's, a, there's um, a settlement. So initially there were six kids that they were seeking to put on trial and the sixth person settled. So that's why we have... Um, the sixth person settled in March of, of 92. That's why we have the, the, the Central Park Five, so to speak, because the five were tried over the course of two trials and found guilty. And um, what kind of evidence was the uh, prosecution able to put together or, or attempt to put together um, in trying to con- convict the, the teenagers? I mean, do they have physical evidence? Is it largely circumstantial? Uh, what kind of... Um, evidence do they put forward well it's largely circumstantial evidence they don't they don't have they don't have um they don't have any physical evidence and it becomes clear in the course of the trial that um that there's no physical evidence in the course of the coverage it's never really quite as clear as it becomes during the trial that there's no um, that there's no no physical evidence, and when I say in the course of the coverage, in the in the in the earlier parts of the coverage, because there's there's so much discussion about the blood, the 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 um 
sometimes there's discussion and information being supplied by people from the prosecutor's office about a knife or blood evidence here or this here evidence. And then it's only in the course of the trial that it becomes patently clear that there is actually no DNA, no physical evidence connecting them to any DNA found on the on the jogger or in in the vicinity of of um, the site where she was attacked and that there is physical evidence connecting someone to the case but that someone is not one of the five one one of the six let's say and and that sixth person that settled the case settled in march of 91 um, but there's no physical evidence connecting them to the to the case and so it almost seems as if when the trial reaches that point when 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 the first trial reaches that point that oh there's going to be this big turn in the case but in fact there's no big turn in the case the prosecutor comes back there, there's no big turn in the case let's say um that benefits the 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 kids the kids um on trial the the prosecutor comes back with a new theory of the case and advances this new theory that they just haven't caught all the people that were there um you mentioned this this use of kind of uh very racialized language um this this idea of wilding um notions of kind of savagery of descriptions of the of the assault as being animalistic and um and that kind of harkens back to long-standing stereotypes particularly of, of black men uh, latino men of kind of being uncontrollable or like sexually aggressive um do you find evidence of that um in the court transcripts um are these kind of terms put forward by lawyers in the case uh well th this is the interesting piece about um the research i did as a sociologist now because there there was quite a bit of talk early on in the coverage about the type of language that was used, the, the racialized language, the, 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 the terms like savage and, you know, hunting. I, I referenced that earlier. Um, wolf pack, uh, predator. Um, so and there were, there were instances when even the term feral was used. Um, and so th this, this is, this is out there definitely as a part of the a part of the case that this is part of what's going on um but when we got to the what i call the legal phase when the trials are taking place um a lot of the terminology falls out in the coverage so when the reporters are writing about the language being used in the court a lot of the 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 these obvious racialized terms fall out of the coverage and at one point it it was it, i was quite curious how could this have happened how could this have happened or what what could we what could explain this and in what the conclusion i came to was that well one we're we're living in this era um where this era of let's say colorblind racism where there there we have other ways of talking about race without directly mentioning race but 
in the context of the criminal justice system, because so many Blacks and Latinos were being drawn into the criminal justice system after the step, in part due to the war on drugs and all the, the crime the crime control acts that were being passed in the late 60s and 70s, the increase in the amount of Blacks and Latinos in the criminal justice system had stepped up this association between Blackness, non-whiteness, and criminality to the point where you didn't need to make this direct reference to race or these racialized terms. It was clear, well, if they if, if there were in the criminal justice system, there's just a great likelihood that they're going to be black or Latino. So we don't need to use those terms. So it was interesting to see how these terms fell out of the coverage and what it said about where we were in the society when it came to um, the associations that had been developed or reinf- being newly reinforced around race and crime. You also uh, make a, a very interesting point in, in the book about um, the kind of uh, objectivity. Of... I, I think I the there's something happened with the sound, so I missed the part of that. If you could repeat it, uh, yeah. Um, so in the book, you make a very uh, you make a very interesting point about the um, the case and journalists covering the case, and in particular, kind of how the objectivity of black journalists was either implicitly or explicitly. Um, brought into question um, and that was maybe something that didn't affect white journalists be that through uh, white privilege on at work um, is that something that affected you directly um, what was your involvement in the actual coverage of the trial itself um, and how did that kind of um, questioning of uh, black journalistic objectivity play out again kind of over the press as a whole well, I, I did not cover the trial. Um, what I, I think this is just a factor, or this factor is something that um, black journalists, many journalists of color have to deal with, the, the challenge to your objectivity when you work in mainstream media. There is this assumption being made oftentimes by supervisors who are white that that you are not able to be objective when you are covering um, someone who is, you know, of the same race. If you're black, if you're covering a black person, then you can't be objective in your coverage of that person. So it almost puts the onus on the um, the journalists of color to go out of their way to prove their objectivity. And it's it's a terrible position to be put in because white journalists cover whites, white actors all the time. You know, um, these white social actors all the time, um, white subjects all the time, and their objectivity is not brought into question simply for that reason. And so it, it was a challenge for me um, in some regard, because there was there was one story in particular that I wanted to cover that I felt my objectivity not felt. I was directly told that I was not being objective. And this was a story, of course, related to the coverage. Um, because of all the animalistic terms being used in the coverage and the the general imbalance in coverage, 
a group of young people, a group of black and Latino teens from a youth center in Harlem um, organized a press conference to have to talk to journalists about this, uh, to give their reaction to what happened to the jogger and to talk to journalists about how the coverage had unfolded up to that point. And it wasn't something that was well attended, but I did attend this this press conference and um, discovered at the press conference that the police were carding Black and Latino teens in groups larger than three who were using Central Park, particularly in those northern regions close to the um, close to Harlem, which was then a predominantly Black and Latino community, and um, they were carding them. And if they couldn't produce identification, they were they were kicking them out of the park. And so this, for me, this was so obviously a civil rights violation that um, I wanted to do a story about this because it was something that was happening in wake of the assault on the jogger um, <clears throat> and the 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 uproar in the city over the, the, her rape and um, an attack. And so I went to my editors to do a story about it, and it was in the process of trying to convince someone that this was a legitimate story, that I was accused of not being objective and just being angry that they were treated that way because they were black. And I, I just kept saying, but it meets all the criteria of a story, and it's, it's part and parcel of this coverage of the rape of the jogger and the aftermath. And um, one of the editors accused me of, of, of not having objectivity. And so I found myself being ping-ponged around the newsroom trying to get someone to run the story. Eventually, I, I went over people's heads and went to the, um, the editor-in-chief, and he supported the story. But then even after he supported the story and said, go on, do the interviews, get the story together, and what I essentially was able to gather from the reporting on that was that the police had instituted this as a policy in the Central Park precinct to do this. It wasn't just some random cop here or there. They were being instructed before they went out on patrol to do this. And so it's a po- policy slash practice. And um, there was a fight amongst people in my paper overrunning this story. And at the end of the day, it was supposed to run as a big Sunday story that would appear um, in the Sunday edition, which has, at the time, the the readership was in the vicinity of 1.2 million. Instead, they cut the guts out of the story, um, made it much smaller and ran it on the obituary page on the in the Saturday paper that had a much, much smaller readership, somewhere in the vicinity of 200,000 or something like that. So it was a way of, of, of censoring, you know, it was, it was a way of censoring me essentially. And, but at the same time, uh, under the guise of still operating as journalists, but the reason for the censorship was because they th- there 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 were groups in there who just felt well this is not legitimate she's not objective and so black journalists journalists of color have a hard hard time off often when 
stories are controversial or things like that. They have this difficult time of just being able to get stories across when in fact there is a possibility, and this is the possibility that's not explored, that they may have insight into these topics that would help the help in the coverage. Instead, it's treated as a liability because there is such um, um, <clears throat> there's such a necessity. One, um, you you refer to this as a type of white privilege, and I do agree with you. There's such a necessity necessity um, underway to protect white privilege and um, to maintain this dominant perspective in mainstream media. Um, so the convictions against these these teenagers uh, comes through um, and they're convicted um, but of between about five and 15 years um, and they all go to prison and then at least kind of within the press, the story really you know seems to go away um until the early 2000s when of course you have um this new twist in the story when you have a convicted serial rapist and murderer uh matthias reyes um who comes forward and, and basically kind of um confesses to okay. the original case so what's your first reaction to that this is i believe are you are you still in graduate school at this point you've, you've started in 2000 is that correct um Yes, I'm still in graduate school at this point, and I hear this has happened. And I start to feel as if I was... It was, it, 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 it was, it was, it, it was one of those things that I heard about it, and it just hit me really hard. Um, because I, I just felt as if I had participated in some ways, in contributing to, to to just destroying the lives of these kids. So you have, um, obviously the case has to be re-looked at um, following uh, Reyes's kind of confession. Um, and what you have is uh, DNA evidence, which... Um, pretty much confirms his participation um, in the assault and identifies him as one of um, the, or the sole contributor of kind of DNA um, evidence found on the victim um, pretty much beyond repute. Um, what is the process then? What, what happens in terms of uh, demanding some kind of retrial or a vacation of the convictions for the original um, five defendants of the case at that point? Well, the district attorney's office, they investigate the case. So they they reinvestigate the case and they start doing it very quietly. I mean, some of the fact that they're doing it sneaks out a little bit into the press, but <clears throat> they initially very quietly went about the business of vacating the, of um, um, reexamining the case, reexamining the possibility. Because one of the things I mentioned earlier that um, Elizabeth Letterer, the district attorney who led the um the the um the court case she when they couldn't find dna evidence con con connecting the the five kids to the jogger they come up with this um whole new whole new theory of the case that 
there was this other person there that just got away, that there is, in fact, some DNA connecting them. And so the district attorney's office in 2002 now going about the business of one, they they established that this person, Matthias Reyes, his DNA irrefutably is the DNA that had been there all along. And does he have any connection to these five? And he has no connection to them whatsoever, none whatsoever. And so they they established clearly that they were not involved. So after this reexamination of the case, um, the the DA petitions the court to vacate the convictions um, because and and part of what he goes about doing is saying very clearly that. Um, there is no way the other things that happened in the park that night would have been viewed. The other things I'm mentioning, the the assaults and harassments, the, there's no way those things would have been viewed in the context in which they were viewed to get the types of convictions that they got had this rape not have happened. The rape shaped the whole perception of the case in part because the rape was presented as this culmination of um, violence in the park that night and um, this this new thing called wilding. So it wasn't simply a rape, it was this rape as a part of wilding. And so he petitioned, the district attorney's office petitioned the court to throw out um, the convictions, not just the rape conviction, the convictions altogether. And uh, what you see is um, the convictions being vacated and a number of the um, well, it's kind of young young men or, uh, at this point um, actually look to sue the city um, for, I believe, a, right. quarter, a quarter of a billion dollars for kind of just obviously the emotional distress and also kind of uh, explicit racial discrimination as as part of the case. Um, how is that uh, decision? I mean, obviously, in many ways, it should be an expected decision. Um, but how is that treated within within the New York press? Um, and what kind of levels of sympathy um, or not do you have for um, these kind of now obviously wrongly convicted um, people? Well, one of the things that helped to support and build sympathy for the young men as they pursued their suit against the city was the film, The Central Park Five, um, made by uh, Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, and James McMahon. And it, 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 I believe, really did make a difference in how they were perceived because... Um, their stories, they had a chance to tell their stories in their own voices. Uh, the story of what happened that night and the story of how it came to be that these conviction, these, um, these confessions came out in the way that they came out. And so um, I think that made a, a huge difference. They, they did pursue and were thankfully successful in their suit against the city. They served, if you know, if in talking about the group between like seven and a half and thirteen years, a ver various amounts of times for the individuals. And the way the court case was settled was that they got somewhere in the vicinity of about a million dollars per year. And you know, it's interesting. You, how do you repay someone for doing that to them? 
I mean, they were, they were children. You had, you, you, the world turned against them. They were termed the worst of the worst. How, how do you, how do you recover from that? How do you repay somebody for doing that to them? So they were termed the worst of the worst. They were convicted and they were imprisoned and they served out the, the full terms. They, they, they all served out parts of their terms in, for the ones who were, um, well, they, they served part of their terms in, um, in the juvenile facilities until they, until they reached the age where they were then moved to adult facilities at age 21. So in some of the descriptions that, that you hear of just the sheer terror, because you're talking about people also who, you know, never been charged with anything, you know, never been handcuffed. So this is sheer terror that they're going through. So I, I can't imagine. I just, I just can't imagine. I remember when someone asked me, well, do you think that's enough money? And I, 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 there's no price you can put on, 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 on what you did to their lives because they, they, you, you see the effects as, as, as much as they've moved on, you know, there's still you, you, when I've heard interviews and, and seen and met the men, um, you you hear them talk about the impact it's it's had on their lives and i am i'm always i'm always moved when i hear them talk about how they're so interested in doing whatever it is they can do with their lives right now to try to prevent anyone from having to go through anything like this the the um the remedies that have to be brought to bear on the criminal justice system, how the press operates, this, this closeness between the press and police that stopped the media in much of what I'm talking about with how the media ran full, full steam ahead with the type of coverage was the, the, the failure to really interrogate and act independent of the police. So this close affinity be, between the media and the police is something that we have had to think about and can never stop thinking about because what it does is it, 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 it shields um, one element of the system and allows it to make mistakes, the kinds of mistakes that should never be allowed, particularly given a society that likes to create associations between race and crime. One of the, um, one of the things that I found particularly interesting about the... Um kind of well the vacation and then also the the case against the city which uh is settled in 2014 is that um bill de blasio as, as part of his mayoral campaign um pledges to settle the case um if he were to win yeah and um you kind of it's it's uh tempting to kind of make comparisons with um the political uh moment in the late 80s where you have or early 90s where you have politicians so you mentioned um the president specifically as uh, citing this case as a way to kind of push through this this enormous um, new kind of anti-crime bill 
Right. Um, and do you think, I mean, do you think that that offers a kind of a hopeful narrative? Is that kind of a moment of maybe reconciliation that de Blasio would do this? Do you think it's more of a kind of opportunistic thing? Um, that it's more just kind of a, a way of political or a form of political strategy that, that helps him try and play off sympathies for the case? Um, or do you think that is um, emblematic of kind of deeper change within the relationship between media and race in New York City? Well, I don't know that it's emblematic of deeper change between um, those sorts of changes in the city. I, I think it's... it's um, I think it's a necessary remedy and that um, it was needed in order for him to establish his sincerity about um, addressing some of the problems, uh, some, some of the problems that were taking place between police and communities of color. Um, because when Bill de Blasio is um, campaigning and then coming into office, um, part of the backdrop now politically that we're dealing with in the city is this um, stop, question, and frisk. Um, practice that's, that's being um, deployed all across the city by the NYPD. People ge generically sort of refer to it as stop and frisk. So stop and frisk is something that's being deployed all across the city. And it's having a huge impact on minority communities because um, the, the disparity, way over 80% of the people being stopped are blacks and Latinos, primarily men. And um, in one year, 2011, it close, they're close to 700,000 stops. More, since um, there, there were more stops than um, men of color, than black and Latino men in the city. So you can just um, ascertain from that statistic that people are being stopped more than once. So the focus of these stop and frisk are taking place in... Um, minority communities in the city. The reason I'm raising this is because there is really a straight through line between what happened um, to the teens at the time in the Central Park case and stop and frisk. And um, this idea that um, we need to aggressively deploy this broken windows policing in the city um, so that we can stop crime because the focus of this bo broken windows um, policing is that they stop small, small, relatively minor things so that um, they prevent bigger crimes. So that's where they deploy their resources at stopping these relatively smaller things. And remember, two, two of the kids picked up, Raymond Santana was one of them, the night when they're looking, the night when they're addressing these um, assault slash slash harassments in the park. Um, they're just, they didn't see them do anything. They were just running and they, they stopped them and they weren't in the park running. They were on the streets outside the park and they just stopped them and brought them in because they were just looking for people. And so the, um, the idea that you can go into neighborhoods and just s stop people because, and, and then keep, 
records on these people that you stop and question them when what what exactly did you see them doing it's not clear what you it's not clear that there was a reason any probable cause for any of this um so stop it i see a, a very clear through line between what happened um, to the kids in Central Park back in 1989 and this stepped up policing um, through stop and frisk in minority communities all through the city. And so Bill de Blasio is coming into office at this time when there is this heavy criticism of stop and frisk. There's a court case underway and, um, I think the his solution to campaign under this promise that he would end stop and frisk is in a way done to establish his sincerity that he sees he sees the problem with policing and that this this case wasn't simply uh, an aberration but it comes out of a particular approach to policing. And so it, it becomes, it, it, it was important for him in my estimation to do that because it draws those connections more clearly for people in those communities so that they see that, oh no, I see and I understand where this case came from and what's going on in the city now with stop and frisk is, is the type of thing that leads to more cases like this. So let me make it perfectly clear to anyone who's listening where I stand on this case and the fact that we have to do something about the stop and frisk because it does more harm than good. So in the in the book, in, in the final chapter, you, you very persuasively make the case, as you say, these, these continuities um, in terms of not just policies such as stop and frisk. Uh, you also make links to kind of more recent cases such as the Trayvon Martin case, um, you see compelling similarities there, uh, not just in terms of the policing of um, black and brown bodies, but also the framing of um, kind of threat and also the the framing of um, so, uh, a, a sen- uh, someone who is a child um, as a kind of adult, as a, as a, as a man. Um, mm. Taking uh, the Trayvon Martin case into account specifically, um, which is kind of where you're your narrative um, kind of finishes in chapter nine. Um, in what ways do you think that this situation, um, or what ways rather, um, can this situation and the relationship between media and criminal justice and construction of race, um, how can that? How can we improve that situation? Not just in terms of a more representative account of um, kind of individual incidents. Um, and a kind of holding police to account, um, but also pushing for a kind of more representative media, um, not just kind of on a regional or city-based locale, but kind of nationally. Um, there needs to be a full-throated recognition that these problems are systemic problems and not aberrations, because... Um, when you look at even how, to me, how the media covered the um, Central Park case, 
afterward in in this in this most recent period of the coverage which is um the movie coming out and hearing the voices of the men themselves there there is in my estimation not this full-throated acknowledgement that there are systemic historical problems between the police and communities of color and as a result of that, the media has to take a much more critical view of how these stories play out when it comes to policing in communities of color. Um, there, there, I see some ginger, some sort of kind of ginger, gingerly attempts at getting at this a little bit in the coverage of the Black Lives Matter movement, as this movement spread around the country, particularly in the wake of the killing of unarmed Black men. What I, what I don't necessarily see with that coverage is um, is, is, a, is a way to address why it is that these why it is that it's so difficult to um to show police abuse of power what would be needed to do that in my estimation would be to start taking on the laws themselves that um normalize this huge power disparity between the police and the citizens of a community who in fact um, have to work together with the, with the police if we are going to continue policing. Part of what many in Black Lives Matter are calling for is an abolition of the police because there has to be a way in which people can police themselves. And so Part of what I see with the, the, the take on this from the protesters and the organizers is that the police have been set up with this huge amounts of legal privilege, huge amounts of, um, huge amounts of discretionary power that everything protects them. And so even at the time when the federal government may step in and say, for example, in Ferguson, the police government, they step in and, and they examine um, what happened with Michael Brown and they rule, well, well, no, there, no, no, no civil rights laws were violated. There are limited things in the legal system that people have to protect them from this abuse of power. But when the press covers this, um, they cover this as if the communities have equal say or they're equally as powerful in the in in this relationship and they're not they're simply not equally as powerful so this idea of government for the people by the people no 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 no, no. that's not what's going on and the press is not the the press though is covering it as if there is this e some some equality in general and the press has this tendency to do this and this is something i address in the book because they 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 throw out power disparities 
and they present these two sides of the story as if these two sides, so to speak, are operating on equal footing and they're not operating on equal footing. So even though I see this, this gingerly approach to maybe talking about this systemic problem, there, there's no real interrogation of this power disparity that puts communities in this place where they're essentially under the thumb of this agency, under the heels of this agency. They're, they're, where, where is the community's voice in this? And questions like that are still not being taken on by the media. And if the media, in my estimation, did its job in such a way as to interrogate these power disparities, you would have a bigger conversation about how these things could work or alternative ways of addressing questions of policing, questions of police power and use slash abuse of police power. Given the lack of discussion about the disparity in power, it's easy to see why the two sides coverage where the police say, well, it's just use of power and the community saying, no, it's abuse of power. But what we're not talking about is why this power disparity exists. And is this power disparity essential for governing? Thanks so much um, for talking to me today, Natalie. Um, listeners uh, who are interested in looking for Natalie's book, Savage Portrayals, Race, Media and the Central Park Jogger Story, um, it's available Temple University Press 2014. If you check uh, your local bookshops or online bookstores such as Amazon, you'll be able to find it there. Um, Natalie, just before I let you go, um, do you have any projects that you're working on at the moment that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Um, or where's the best place uh, for listeners to find more of your work? Well, I'm work. the new project I'm working on picks up in where I leave off in that chapter nine. This new project is an examination of um, stop and frisk in New York City and the impact of it in terms of defining racial categories, this redefining, this constant redefining of racial categories that exists in our society and the ways in which stop and frisk is deployed in part with the use of um, these computerized models, algorithms that reinforce and reinscribe criminality onto huge portions of black and Latino populations in the city. And so that's that's the next project I'm working on. And um, can listeners follow you on on Twitter or do you have a, a personal website that you'd like to? Oh, I, I would love if they would follow me on Twitter. I'm N Byfield on Twitter. And um, I have a website, NatalieByfield.com. I will be updating it soon. <laughs> it's always hard to keep up sometimes with all of this. But yes, they can follow me on Twitter and they can check me out on my website also. That's great. Thanks so much yeah. for talking to me today, Natalie. Oh, thank you for um, including me in this project. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Goodbye. You've been listening to New Books in African-American Studies, part of the New Books Network. Support for the network is generously provided by Amherst College Press. For more information, go to newbooksnetwork.com, where you can subscribe via iTunes or follow on Facebook and Twitter. Goodbye. Goodbye.